This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Sir Eric Thomas, former Vice-Chancellor at the University of Bristol, President of Universities UK and Chair of the Worldwide University Network, and now Studiosity Advisory Board Member. Welcome. It's a particular pleasure for me to welcome Professor Chris Day, who is Vice-Chancellor of the um, University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, and I, I suppose I'd better admit it now, I am a, a it is my alma mater, so I have a particular um, uh, 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 link to, uh, to Newcastle. And um, I think, Chris, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself a little bit, but could I just start by saying, that everyone sends their congratulations on uh, your award of the CBE uh, in the New Year's Honours for your medical research and your 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 work in liver disease. Uh, many congratulations. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. And uh, if you could just give a very brief pen portrait of, of your career up to now. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Um, so, uh, trained in medicine at Cambridge, born and bred in the northeast. Um, so twanged back on the Geordie Elastic to hospitals in um, in Newcastle to do my sort of postgraduate training in medicine, um, inspired by a professor of liver disease, who, which is the reason that I chose that discipline, combined uh, clinical practice in liver disease with research, um, in particularly in liver disease related to alcohol and obesity. Um, and through that, I guess, gained enough experience, reputation, if you like, to be promoted to head of school of medicine and then for eight years served as head of the Faculty of Medical Sciences in Newcastle, um, which includes things like dentistry, psychology and life sciences, as well as medicine. Did that from 2008 to 16 um, and then on the 1st of January 17 um, became Vice-Chancellor of Newcastle University. Right. So, so you're six years in. I mean, you're you're an old yeah, this, vice chancellor. This is year now. seven. Yeah, year seven. Just starting this week, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> How time flies. How time flies. <laughs> well, um, I, I suppose again, I should admit to the uh, audience that I'm also a, a son of the northeast of England. So uh, 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 you and I have the same heritage in that particular part of the world. One of the things uh, that I thought I would explore with you, Chris, is a, the role of the university within its locality and how you mm. operate that. Mm. Um, I mean, whatever else you'd say about the northeast of England, it has a very particular culture. It's a very particular, very identifiable society with, with quite strong social norms and behaviours, uh, probably as strong as anywhere in the United Kingdom and how you how you interact with that and how you uh, how you use that and at the same time at the same time you have a very big international uh, um, uh, uh, profile and I know you have campuses uh, abroad and and how you use the sense of Newcastle internationally I, if we could just explore that. No, it's an interesting question. In fact, it was the first question I was asked by the local newspaper, which you'll know very well, The Journal, who, who interviewed me the week I was appointed um, and asked me that exact question. In fact, they presented it as a 
tension and that you know I had to do one or the other and which was I going to do and um, so it is an interesting question the answer of course that I'm sure you agree with me is that we can do and absolutely must do both and that actually both benefit from the other and I'll, I'll try and put some flesh onto the bones of that of that comment so you know effectively our, our job is to do you know great education isn't it produce worldly-wide, well-trained graduates who go out into the world. That's one part of our job. And the other part of our job is to do, is to do research that advances various fields uh, across academia, but hopefully increasingly has applications outside the university and benefits society. And I suppose, put very simply, um, on the education side, because our students necessarily come from um, this region, the rest of the UK, and also globally, that, have, that our education offering has to um, be appealing to and be appropriate to uh, a population of students that comes from everywhere in the world. The particular local role of that, however, uh, to answer your you know, parochial question, is that we know sadly that the northeast of England still, and probably had in your time here, the lowest participation rate at university mm -hmm as a whole it's just over 20 percent you know it's 50 percent in london it's average 30 odd percent in the country so probably the majority of our local students that come here are widening participation students as they're called as they come from disadvantaged backgrounds and my bbc of education retired now used to used to say that um widening participation students are like peaches you know they don't travel well and I think we accept because of their financial constraints, if you are a disadvantaged student who is aspiring to get to a, a top university, it's likely to be from home um, where you can rely on that family support, perhaps live at home, certainly nearby. So um, we're a mixture of now roughly a fifth of our students would be in that category, local students from disadvantaged backgrounds, us playing a role in raising and their aspirations going forward. About a fifth of our students come from all around the world, and I think that brings benefits locally for, for fairly obvious reasons in the money that they spend and the cultural mm -hmm. diversity that they bring. And then the other sixty percent would, would classically be, um, you know, from elsewhere in the in in England, typically from the big northern cities like Manchester and, and Leeds. In terms of again, but the local relevance, I think, and this is probably increased in, again even over the last decade or so. So you've got that local relevance in um, in doing the right thing for your local disadvantaged students who otherwise might not go to university. But then increasingly now, we're being expected to produce a graduate workforce that is relevant to your region. So you know when we're thinking about the type of courses, the type of graduates, the type of skills we give them we're talking you know, very regularly with lo the local commercial sector, either through their representative bodies like Chambers of Commerce or individually and saying, you know, what is it you need from these 21 year olds at the moment um, for them to be fit for your workplace? What are the growth industries in the Northeast that we would like to power by producing the graduates? And you could argue, well, why would that matter for us? You know, as long as our graduates go you know, somewhere in the world and get a job, we've done our job, but I think, actually for the local economy um, it's really important that us as a big importer of students from outside the region um, link with the commercial sector so that many of them stick and stay and, and stay so that that would be the sort of the education side and I'm very happy to discuss the research 
um, side as well, Eric, but I'll perhaps stop there and see if you wanted to follow any of those points up. Well, I mean, I always made the point that the, the, the press narrative about widening participation is always about who goes to Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. And, and, and I always used to say that, you know, that if you're in a family in a terraced house in Redcar in, yeah. in Cleveland, yeah. and nobody in that house has ever been to a university before, your, your trajectory is never going to be to Oxford and Cambridge, but it is going to be to a Newcastle or a Teesside or somewhere yeah. local that you feel comfortable with and, yeah. and where, where and, and, and that's not doing people down. That's just being realistic about people's um, view of the world. Do you think yeah. that's fair? No, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, you know, we, we know, don't we, that the, the advantages of going to university in terms of your likely graduate destinations, earning potential are just enormous. And as you say, just getting to university is, is really important for many of these individuals. And then, of course, they can inspire their own children and friends and family to, to you know, to, to perhaps aim higher than a, you know, than a Teesside university, even though that's successful in itself. So, so absolutely. I, I think the Oxbridge obsession, I, lo I love the, um, is it the Yes Minister line where the, where Sir Humphrey comes in and says, we're having problems with the university sector minister. And he says, what, both of them? And I, 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 there is sometimes a feeling that that view in Westminster is still there, given how many of them, of course, went to Oxford and Cambridge. And of course, I can't knock that, given that I went there myself. But, uh, you know, and it very much raised my aspirations being, you know, mixing with Cambridge graduates and feeling that I was one of them. And I think it's given me an enormous boost throughout my career. Sure. So I won't knock it, but as you say, depends on where your baseline is, isn't it? As to what your aspiration potentially can be. I mean, I was thinking of my time as an undergraduate in Newcastle, 71 to 76, Chris, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm an old man, I'm an old man. The, well, I started uh, two years later after you left, so we're not that different. <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I was wondering then what the profile of the university, you know, you, it's difficult for you to see as an undergraduate, but I presume mm. you work very hard now to try and raise the profile of the university within within the city and particularly within those disadvantaged groups. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, on, on, on that last specific point, you know, we now actually lead up several national initiatives, but also local initiatives. I mean, around getting out into the school system, raising aspirations, getting them onto campus, all of that work. And of course it is, some of it is, is very altruistic because if we, you know, if we bring, make a lot of effort in a school in Annick, which is, you know, 50 miles north of Newcastle, with probably, I guess, probably about a 10% participating rate in higher education. And some of them end up in Northumbria or Sunderland or even Leeds. I still think we've done our job. You know, this isn't mm. just about getting students into Newcastle, but, We've got a recent initiative that you know about because you pointed me in that direction with the sort of with the into university partnerships, and I'm delighted to say that based on you connecting me with them, we we opened our first into university centre in about the most deprived part of the northeast that I'm aware of, which is a place called Walker near Newcastle, just up the river. Um, we've already had you know two thousand students got, gone into the program. Of, so this, for, for the listeners, is our, our centres in the middle of these deprived areas where university colleagues and students will go out and offer tuition, uh, you know, at lunchtimes, during school holidays, in the evenings, 
to raise the aspirations and indeed the you know the educational attainment of um, of students that otherwise perhaps wouldn't have that and the track record of these into centers which began in london in deprived areas of london is taking schools with you know less than 10 percent university participation up to 70 or 80 percent over not that long a period and even the short period that we've been doing this and we do it in partnership with northumbria uh, the other university in newcastle over the road um, we, we've seen you know dramatic increases at, at that uh, sixth form was applying to university so that's a very specific initiative you can't have an into university center everywhere but in these very difficult to reach areas i think they've been transformational in in, in giving that really focused support so that is absolutely part of i think what all universities should be doing and particularly in in the northeast and i guess the southwest that you know well would be the other area because i think we pretty much compete with the southwest in the league tables for which population is less likely to go to university yeah i mean one of the lessons that i i learned during my own vice chancellorship and i'd be interested in your reflections on this is how important now it is to engage with the other important society structures yeah. in, in the city. You know, yeah. the, 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 the authorities, all the yeah. authorities, the third sector, yeah. the health, the health system. Uh, you know, I believe that when I was an undergraduate, you could kind of sit above that sort of thing. Yes. In the university. Yeah. But now no, it's yeah. a huge part of the university's role. Absolutely agree. And, you know, you'll be aware of this term. I don't know who first anchored it, anchored it, uh, first quoted it, but the so-called anchor institutions, you know, that which effectively to me and you mean the big the big employers in a region which are unlikely to move, like the university, like the hospitals, like the city council. Um, I think probably one of the several good things that came out of the COVID crisis across the country, actually, was that universities and the other anchor institutions because they had to get together to work out how they were going to deal with the pandemic and whether it was students whether it was people walking you know walking around the town i think that where there weren't close relationships and we did have one one pretty good already i think you know there was weekly meet crisis meetings you know between those anchor institutions on how the northeast or the city was dealing with covid brought us really close together we've now got civic university agreement here which is a formal agreement between ourselves the trust and the city council uh, we we call it collaborative newcastle we we have subgroups that effectively look at three strands of activity which we think helpfully we can do together one is around health and, and sort of social care which is largely trust and city council but with some input from the university then you have the economic subgroup which is looking at the growth industries and how can the universities play in that and then the third one now increasingly which probably wasn't so important in your day was is the sort of climate sustainability what can the sure. three three of us do about making sure newcastle is a sustainable green place to work and that's all come out of um I, I i you know the start the start of working together has been over the last decade or so but covid didn't half accelerate it eric oh how interesting now mm. tell tell me how you know whenever i was doing my international stuff uh, yes. what I always had to have was a slide that had a map of uh, <laughs> England that showed yeah. showed everybody where Bristol was. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I just wondered, hey, do you do you have to have that map as well, so to speak? Yeah. Then how how do you portray? You know, how is it? How is Newcastle as a place and a culture part of your portrayal of the international uh, uh, internationally? 
Yeah, it's a good one. I, I, we tend to focus our activities on where we have, and I, I don't know whether you did the same, but we focus our activities, you know, when, do, where, when and where do, when do I get on a plane and where do I fly to? You know, where do they think it's worth me turning up? And it, it tends to be two, two categories. One is where we have large concentrations of alumni. Sure. Um, and that will be places like Singapore, where in the 60s they decided to make their economy based around naval architecture and shipbuilding, and we were the place to do it. And so there are thousands of very high worth, influential individuals in Singapore who know all about Newcastle. So that question doesn't really arise. They, they might know about an old version of it, but they have that affection. And similarly, when I go to Hong Kong or Malaysia or China, I'm going to meet large groups of typically alumni that, that love us already. And, and want to help and you know I, I give them updates on where the University of 2022 is and is going and you know they're willing to help but they're, they're, we're, they're already on our side. I think the other trips that I go to and I'm sure you did the same are where there are you know major international universities that you see strategic value in becoming partners you know with and of course again probably you're not going to have those meetings unless your academics have made the connections below sure. and you've, you've decided now that that's a significant enough set of connections that this is worth making this an institutional level relationship and so you then go and have dinner with the vice chancellor you'll walk around you'll you'll, you'll and you'll get them over here so again it's they sort of build up over time the, these things and i guess those academic partnerships are very much based aren't they on on your academic strengths they don't really care where you are you could be in the middle of the north pole if you've got great engineers in aeronautics you know like at bristol that's what they're coming to that's what they want to speak to you about and who they want to work with you so that old lovely northeast culture and the history and the talk i've just given to um to new staff members that i give every three or four months and talks about shipbuilding and stevenson's rocket and you know that that's I, i'm not sure how well that resonates with the international audience who are either alumni and know all that and just want to help or right. they're seeking us out now because they see great research here that they think will actually be be good for them to partner with they're a bit agnostic about where where on our as you know in our little country particularly if you're somewhere like us or you know or parts of europe and south america you know uk is so small it's like a state of america isn't it so where whereabouts on that state you happen to be you know they're not really that bothered to be honest oh, absolutely um i always used to joke that uh, uh my geographers used to tell me that the geography is the beginning the middle and the end of everything oh no they're the same they're still the same <laughs> In fact, there's quite a few geographers. There's a lot of geographers become vice chancellors, as you know. Yeah, and quite a lot of geographers who end up in in parliament. It's interesting because they do get a, a very broad education, don't yes. they? Yes, yes, it's a great degree. But yeah. yeah, I don't know if you know the the geography of Bristol, but the University of Bristol sits at the top of a hill. Yeah, no, I've, I've been there above above the city. And it looks down. Yes, it looks, looks down. down, and and I think that was quite important in in creating more of a challenge about engagement with the city. Yes, yes. It's always said that, uh, especially for our international uh, listeners, that the Newcastle United play at St. James's Park. And it's almost impossible to get to St. James's Park without crossing the University of Newcastle upon Tyne. Well, it is. And I mean, Probably I have I, a higher profile. I, in... I talk about it a lot that actually, you know, I think we must be the only, if not one of a few, 
you know, universities that can genuinely say that, you know, you can shout out of the, my window and speak to somebody in the hospital trust in the football ground and walking down the shopping street of Northumberland, Northumberland Street. And that, you know, they are genuinely within 500 yards of each other. And that is that concentration and the city council, of course, which is 50 yards over the road. I can right. see into the CEO's window out of my window. So, you know, Newcastle's relatively small, but importantly, the anchor institutions are very concentrated in one geography. And, you know, so so it, it is very easy to walk across between these things. I mean, when you're walking down the shopping street in Newcastle and, you know, a Newcastle United score, you can hear, you know, you don't have to look up on your phone. Are we one nil up? You can hear that we're one nil up. And I, that, I, that, it's a... It's it's a it's a huge draw for students actually. You know, when they come here on open days, you know, to be struck by they're not in the middle of a field in Warwick, or you know, they're actually in the middle of the city, right in the city centre, next to the hospital and the football ground, you know, and the nightclubs. It's all here. It isn't you know we're a very non-dispersed city in in many ways, aren't we, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I can remember those uh, goals <laughs> being scored in my youth. The uh, and I mean it's it is it's been a fascinating listening to how the city is woven into your university yeah. now uh, yeah. and 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 how universities are such a sense particularly universities in provincial cities uh, such an important part of the social structure the cultural structure and the economic structure i mean we we haven't touched on it because you know it's such a big topic when we talk about you know what does the university do local and i talked a lot about the graduates but of course the other big thing we offer is the research and development and you know a little bit by luck but quite a bit by design our our research strengths now in things like health and data and energy and electrification are the very strengths of the you know the industry clusters that are growing up around us so but you know there's now a real a real i can give you lots of good examples where industries have either been started up grown or indeed attracted to the region because of our researchers and that knowledge exchange is is playing out outside my my building here to how the economy is going to recover you know from all of the bashes that it's taken and that says so some of that was just you know we just luckily happened to have a bunch of people in the chemistry department who've been working on battery technology for years and now suddenly everybody wants to talk to them because of the, the growth in that industry but i think it, even in the six years i've done it there was a sort of slightly academic um, sort of, um, I don't know, what's the word, snobbery about, well, we do this stuff and it might be relevant to industry, but if it is, that's great, but that's not my prime rule. My job is to advance knowledge. And I think, you so see, even in my six years, there is now a recognition that actually, you know what, for lots of us, our job is to do research, which is directly impacting the economy or the people of the city. And that that sort of getting away from the idea that applied research is dirty and you know in blue skies discovery research is what the really clever people do i think that, that that spread has gone really i think things again things like the astrazeneca vaccine and that that was really clever people in oxford who actually did something that pretty quickly saved lives i think all of that helped to break down this idea that universities are for clever people doing stuff in isolation and then there's other people in companies who are doing proper research you know that, that has benefit so I, I and I really really welcome that obviously yeah I mean in a sense twas ever thus I once did a, an exercise of looking at where university strengths were particularly in provincial cities and how they reflected the industrial strengths that were already there 
in the uh, in in the surrounding yeah. hinterland. Yeah. So aeronautics was very strong at Bristol. What a surprise when you've got that whole aerospace industry in North Bristol in yeah. Filton. You know, so so it's two ways. The university feeds off the industrial strengths around it, and also creates and adds to them. Yeah, absolutely. That that relationship between the two, I think, it's never been closer and. Yeah, it looks like from certainly things that they're saying that you know George Freeman, who's the latest um, science minister, he has done it before, as you may know. So he does know something about it and set up his own life sciences company. Is now very much talking about the UK as a set of academic industrial clusters um, that that together will produce the leveling up and the spreading of wealth beyond the southeast that they've been talking about for so long and. They're actually now explicitly talking about the role of the university sector in that, whereas previously they would talk about clusters as if universities didn't exist, which was slightly odd. Yes, yes. Well, this we've got about ten minutes left, Chris, and this okay. naturally follows on, if you don't mind, to because because it's so timely with you when you talked about your alumni internationally. With you, you're you're embarking on a major fundraising campaign uh, for Newcastle, and yeah, I, I can say I'm delighted to be involved in it. And um, you, how, what do you think that fundraising campaign gives gives the university? How's how's how is it going to in, in inverted commas make a difference? I mean, it's money, but it's more than money. Yeah, it is. No, so so I'm. I'm very much speaking to my teacher here, Eric. Um, but I think the things that I learned from you several years ago, in fact, before I was in this position, I think I still talk about them now. And I guess to the listener, the fairly obvious reason that one goes on a major fundraising campaign is to, you know, is to raise money, and that gives you often flexibility to do things that you otherwise couldn't do. And you know, nobody would be surprised by that. What they might be surprised to learn is that most of the pots of money we get from government or other funders tends to be very clearly earmarked to do this or that or whatever and and which is great but it, it doesn't give you that flexibility some of it does and we I won't go into detail of that as you know but but most of it doesn't and so one of the advantages of philanthropic funding is that it can give you flexibility to try things to invest in areas and things that you otherwise would struggle to get funding for and that's fairly obvious that the two others though which I, I think is what I learned from you um the first one is, of course, when you're coming up with a fundraising campaign, you and your senior team, and indeed, increasingly, the whole university, have to be very clear about what it is you're good at, what your strategy is. And, and that, I think, is helpful for all sorts of reasons, internally um, and externally, to, to be forced to be clear about what it is the university... Mm. You know, if some, I, The challenge I got at an interview, actually, for the Pro Vice-Chancellor job, um, from, from somebody you know very well, from John Savile, that was on the panel, who asked ML, head of the MRC at the time, said to me, you know, if, if Alan Shearer, you know, in his, you know, gave you 100 million pounds in the medical school, what would you do with it? And of course, he wanted exactly that. He wanted me not to say, oh, we do lots of things and we'd employ a few PhD students and get some new professors. He wanted me to be really explicit about what Newcastle Medical School strengths were and say, we'd fund cancer, we'd fund rare diseases and mitochondria, etc. And I, so I think what this has forced us to do over the last two years as we've been doing the preliminary work for the campaign is be very clear about our strengths. And we've used that to make investment decisions out with the fundraising campaign in hiring decisions, etc. So I think that the second benefit of a good 
proper university fundraising campaign is it focuses your mind on what it is you're good at and, and can look a donor in the eye and say, if you give this money, you're, put, you're giving it into the best, one of the best places in the world to do this. And then the third reason, of course, is, um, well, not of course, but perhaps less obvious, but probably as important is that when you're talking to potential donors with this clear message about what it is we're good at, um, it may well be that probably the majority of those people will not give you any money, but all of them will now know about you and they'll be very yeah. clear and they will be talking to their friends and their dinner party guests and the ministers they bump into. And so I think it, it helps you spread that word, doesn't it, amongst the influencers about what it is the university is doing and is good at. Absolutely. I, I'll never um, forget Graham Henderson, who you may remember was vice chancellor of the University of Teesside. Yes, nice man, lovely man. And he was he saying he was that, about seven foot tall. He was, yes, rugby player. <laughs> and he uh, he said that, of course, for many of the alumni, they remember the University of Teesside twenty years ago, yeah, as as a series of porter cabins. Yes, yes. And yes. And, and part of you know getting out and getting the message out was well, look at these, look, look, look what your university is now. Not, not what it was when you were there. This is yeah. what it is now. Yes. And, and look how, you know, and there's a, there's a big story to tell about your university yes. um, that, that, that your alumni may not actually be all that cognizant of. And some, well, some of them get quite upset that it wasn't like it was. And my goodness, you've knocked our old hall of residence down. And things. <laughs> and you have to sort of gently explain to them that it's not really sensible to to be living in halls of residence that were suitable for somebody in the 1960s. But, you know, but I know exactly what you mean. I suppose that, that the, the people... I was going to say, I've just said a really funny anecdote about that, about universities and their, and their estate, which your listeners, I'm sure, will find amusing. Um, your listeners may know that Prince Charles was sent to the University of Aberystwyth before he became the Prince of Wales to learn how to be Welsh, effectively. And it was depicted very carefully in The Crown, the, the Netflix series, The Crown. And I know the Vice-Chancellor of Aberystwyth very well. And um, they filmed those, those scenes with Charles being um, at Aberystwyth in the University of Aberystwyth. And they turned, up, they turned up to the University of Aberystwyth to find where his room was with a whole load of decorators and lots of photographs to redecorate his, you know, his, his room in the, in the accommodation in the way it was in 1965. To discover that it wasn't any different, <laughs> and the decorators were sent away because it was exactly as he was. The same as it was. Uh, yeah, exactly. Brilliant. So you don't always change everything. <laughs> I was thinking, thinking that you know, if people who are thinking of um, uh, starting a fundraising campaign were asking advice from you, Chris, one of the things that I'm sure they would say, particularly around the senior level, is, you know, how do you bring your governing body on board? How do you explain to them? actually that it's going to take time and it's going to yeah. take investment and it's going to take patience to, uh, you know uh, yeah. that, that that i think is one of the great challenges of it isn't it it, it is i mean i think you know if, you, if you've got the right people in your governing board they've probably been involved with other similar fundraising either in their own or other organizations so they probably understand it i mean the real reason apart from the fact that one always needs one's governing board behind them as you know is that you know, you can't do this with two two men, three women and a dog. You know, you do need a serious team of fundraisers and people who manage your alumni relations. And um, 
and that needs some speculation. You know, you've got to invest money before the money starts to increase. Um, and so, you know, one of the problems I've encountered is having, until fairly recently, a finance director who just didn't believe this, did not believe that if the university invested in 20 more people in advancement, that that would bring in benefits. And so now that that's changed, I've been able to win that argument with him and the governing board to convince them that our new director of advancement, saying you it's two years now, but you know needs a team of good people around him. And how did I win that argument? Well, I won the argument because you know universities like Bristol and King's and have shown very clearly there is almost a straight line between um, you know correlation between how much you invest in advancement teams and how much money you raise. And it must be one of the most easy, I think investment arguments to make you know that if you invest x pounds in staff in advancement you will get x times y back and i was able to convince them now of course you can only do that for so long and if our line of increased investment in the team equals increased income coming in you know is not straight they will be on they will be down on me fairly quickly but we're in a honeymoon period where with a clear story evidence from other universities and indeed our own about growth in, in advancement team equals growth in income, we've won the argument at the moment. We now have to deliver that. And if we deliver that, I'm sure we'll be able to make an argument as other university, universities have to continue to invest in, in more staff because they will keep bringing in at least their salary, one would hope at least their salary, but probably 10 times their salary. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, the mature fundraising organisations in the States have a one to 10 ratio. I mean, ours are younger than that, and we have to accept that we're probably a two to ten ratio. But uh, that's in terms of what investment in the team for what they're yeah, bringing. Yeah, yeah. You, you for for every two pounds you put in, you'll get ten pounds back. Yeah. yeah. Finally, um, the other the other thing is is to prepare um, to prepare the university and and your governing body for the times when it's when it's rough. And yeah. you've done four months and there's not been a, a big donation and people are wondering, you know, yeah. if, if it's worth it. It, it. And I think the other thing, uh, Chris, is it's hard work. And, yeah. and people need to understand that there's a lot of benefit from it, but it is hard work. And it's professional and hard work. It needs to be done properly. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, you know, as we're both... I think as you have also said to me in the past, and given that we're both medically trained, you know that there's very little, there's very little in life, is there? Where you don't, you know, you don't have to have to have to uh, reap what you sow. You know, I think what else do we know in our in our academic or professional lives where you don't have to put serious effort in to get reward? And I, I, I'm sure that most of the senior team and council accept that that this is not something you can go and do the odd talk and do the odd dinner and raise twenty million pounds from donors. You know, this is. This is recurrent meetings with the same people, listening to the same old complaints that they have, but winning them over and giving them, you know, good propositions that they eventually can come round to. And, you know, and those days when you do get the big check, you just have to celebrate them, haven't you? And accept that they're not that often, but that's why you do all this. That's why you do it. Well, uh, Chris, we've we've done our half an hour. It's been a fascinating discussion, of course. Deeply nostalgic for me about the northeast of England, as you will, uh, yes, yes, uh, yes, as you will appreciate. Yes, and uh, very much looking forward to a successful fundraising campaign for for your university. Um, and 
you know, and I suppose we can't um, uh, leave this without wishing all the very best to your football team in Newcastle. Oh, well, we, gave, we gave you a scare last week, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, one day I'll persuade you to get that... Uh, that, that box at St. James's Park for the university. Yes. But yes. Uh... <laughs> we, we had one for one season, but only because um, a, a, an alumnus let, basically lent us half of his for one season. But at the end of that season, he was so fed up with the then owner, Mike Ashley, he gave it up. So yeah, we, right. we had half a box for a year. <laughs> right. Well, Chris, thank you very much. I mean, one final comment. All the very best with that widening participation initiative. Yeah. So important for the city. So important. Absolutely. For the, Absolutely. For the we'll have to get you to visit. And the walkers of this world. Yeah, we'll take you down to Walker and see it. It is, you know, it is something you almost have to witness. You do, you know, it, it, it is such a rough part of town. I, I knew it well because my son actually played football for for that team for a little while because they were the best team in the area for fairly obvious reasons. And uh, so I, I know where it is very well. And, um, you know, to think that we can, if we can get 5% up to 10% in those schools around there, then we've done our job. Yeah, we'll we? try yeah. yeah. Well, all power to your elbow, Chris. Thanks, Eric. Thank very much indeed. Too. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next students first symposium an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.